having been provoked by the title of the symposium, The Future of Permanence, uh, I, I have to admit that permanence makes me nervous. The notion that a personage, artifact, structure, or even idea is sufficiently durable to remain unaltered in perpetuity seems implausible in a physical and cultural environment characterized by entropy, cataclysm, decay, regeneration. After all, is there much that we have inherited that we could characterize truly as having been, still being, and irrevocably destined to be permanent? One needs only to consider recent examples, such as the Buddhas of Bamiyan or the lost monuments of Palmyra, to recognize the inescapable temporality of even long-standing human creation. And I say that recognizing that permanence, with its claim for eternity, stands at the very center of the paradox that I think defines every museum. On one hand, <clears throat> the museum, in both its institutional and architectural formation, exists to present works of art to some constituency of interested parties, ideally fulfilled in a compatible, if not complementary, setting. This function is certainly a museum's most familiar one, patently self-evident to those who love visiting collections buildings. Indeed, many of the world's most beautiful spaces are precisely those that have been designed to present and regardless of collection or type, building or style or location, a good museum nourishes those seeking delight and discovery. Equally important, though far less apparent to visitors, is the museum's role as caretaker, as protector, and as conservator of works of art forever. For example, can one imagine a museum director that could countenance the demise of even the least significant element of a collection on their watch? Similarly, is there a museum that cannot take seriously the increasingly exacting requirements governing all aspects of borrowing artwork, including its transportation, invigilation, maintenance of environmental conditions, et cetera? This more sober, cautious, and often defensive obligation looms large in the minds of those tasked with the stewarding of the artwork and frequently collides with a noble aspiration to exhibit it. This posture is always embedded in the institutional ethos of museum and always manifests itself in its architectural design. I would offer as an archetypal illustration of this uh, paradoxical mission, the Yale University Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library completed in 1963 by uh, Gordon Bunshaft of Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. Here, the dual role of presentation and preservation crystallized in the library's central space where a hermetically sealed bronze and glass tower holds nearly 200,000 volumes of rare books and manuscripts over six floors. Set within a vast enclosure comprised of translucent marble slabs which defang the otherwise fatally damaging effects of sunlight and weather to works on paper, vellum, and papyrus, the tower maintains ideal temperature, ideal humidity, ideal air purity, ideal smoke detection, ideal fire suppression, and ideal lighting controls while presenting the spines of the world's most important books to viewers who circumambulate an elegant mezzanine in awe. Conservation itself is on display. And I believe that one could say that the success of any museum building can, can be said to depend upon its ability to account for both of these often contradictory demands, presentation and preservation. One cannot imagine a successful museum where the works are displayed in a dim, unflattering, or uninviting environment, nor where the works suffer, unavoidable decay, suffer avoidable decay, degradation, and disregard. 
What follows is a story of a noted museum building, the Yale Center for British Art, deemed a work of art unto itself, which my uh, architectural firm has worked on to conserve for the past eight years. How it reached a crossroad where both its inherent architectural integrity and its ability to preserve and protect its contents began to strain, and the measures taken to assure its endurance. No accounting of the Yale Center for British Art Uh, can begin without recognizing the impact of two men. Um, in 1966, Paul Mellon, Yale University class of 1929, bequeathed to his alma mater one of the most significant acts of benefaction ever bestowed on a university. Born in 1907 to Andrew W. Mellon, the American industrialist and financier, and Nora McMullen, an English mother, Mellon spent childhood summers in England and upon graduating from Yale, went on to pursue a second degree at Clare College, Cambridge. A lifelong Anglophile, he remained in London during his father's ambassadorship to the court of St. James and soon thereafter began amassing a collection that, <coughs> of British art which would form the core of his bequest. Comprised of a uniquely broad and uniquely deep collection of paintings, drawings, prints, rare books, manuscripts, and sculpture, Mellon not only gave the artwork but the funding necessary to design, construct, and endow the building which would house it. The other figure whose name is forever associated with the Yale Center for British Art is that of architect Louis Kahn. Born in 1901 in what is now Estonia and raised in Philadelphia, Kahn was an accomplished musician and artist as a young man. These interests led him <coughs> uh, to architecture and subsequently attend the University of Pennsylvania from which he graduated in 1924 and went on to practice with such noted architects as Paul Cray and George Howe. An incontestably brilliant architect and artist, Kahn was best known as an educator and theoretician for most of his early career. It was not until 1951 when he won the commission to design the expansion of the Yale Art Gallery, largely due to the endorsement of chair of the architectural department at Yale, George Howe, that Kahn's career was launched. While the Yale Art Gallery, the university's first modernist building, and Kahn's first large-scale commission had been largely successful, it was not without some controversy. And as it came time to select an architect for Mellon's bequest, Kahn was among a group of contenders that included Philip Johnson, Robert Venturi, and I.M. Pei. Uh, nonetheless, Kahn was selected on the strength of his recently completed Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, and the still under construction Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth. Located at the southern edge of the Yale campus, the building site was somewhat controversial. Never before had Yale, still affected by the civil unrest that beset New Haven two years prior, built its core campus across Chapel Street, uh, New Haven's historic boundary between town and gown. The design launched in 1970, and by late 71, the design of the current building was largely in place and approved for development uh, by Yale Corporation at the end of that year. Uh, the design was advanced in Kahn's Philadelphia office, and contract drawings were released in 1972, with construction beginning later that fall. <clears throat> Alas, Kahn would die in New York City in March of 1974, with the building structure only reaching the second floor. 
The firm of Pilecchia and Myers, comprised of two of Kahn's former staff, Anthony Pilecchia and Marshall Myers, was hired by Yale to oversee the completion of the project. Construction was substantially concluded in 1975, and the center opened its doors to the public in April of 1977. For those of you that know uh, the Yale campus, you will see Kahn's Yale Art Gallery directly behind the photos, the, the gentleman in the photos. And here we see the building from Chapel Street shortly after completion and much as it appears today. <clears throat> as she assumed directorship at the Yale Center for British Art in 2002, it was already clear to Amy Myers that Kahn's building, approaching its fourth decade of uninterrupted use uh, and enjoying an unimagined expansion of staff, collections, and scholarly research, had begun to drift from its original intentions. Both the building's architectural character and its infrastructural system, so crucial to maintaining the proper conservation conditions within the museum, were under stress. For example, the center's lower court, an exterior space accessed from a monumental stair off of Chapel Street, um, it's, it's named the lower court, referring to um, a sequence of spaces. Uh, beginning, there's the lower court, uh, beginning with the entrance court of the building and the library court of the building on the second floor, um, had been finalized ultimately by Pilecki and Myers and the lower court had always been envisioned to serve as an exterior amenity for the restaurant tenant below and as an egress from the center's lecture hall. However, Kahn's design for the lower court was quickly compromised by undisciplined accretions and fanciful alterations that disembodied the court from the center itself. Incongruous trellises, latticework, and small structures haphazardly colonized the space once precisely defined and conceived. Its association with the center had been completely camouflaged and was largely imperceptible to passersby on Chapel Street. Uh, worse still was the desperate failing condition of the stairs themselves. Intended as a monumental public amenity, the steps and the lower court had become dangerous, unusable, and unsightly, and signaled the most visible symptom of a larger set of issues looming on the building's horizon. Recognizing the inefficiency and occasional danger of addressing such necessary work as in piecemeal fashion, Myers um, uh, instead directed her attention to a comprehensive assessment of the building so that larger priorities could be identified, policies regarding renewal and preservation established, and a deliberate process be instated towards preemptively addressing mounting needs in the building. In a stroke of, in a stroke of prescience, Meyer commissioned the London-based conservation architects Peter Inskip and Peter Jenkins Architects to embark on a study of the building which ultimately resulted in the book Louis Icahn and the Yale Center for British Art. Used heavily even in manuscript form by our, form, by our firm, <clears throat> the book provides a history of the building and its construction, identification and ranking of the culturally significant elements, and a set of policies to address the looming repair, maintenance, restoration, preservation required for contemporary life at the center. This guide proved instrumental throughout a series of phased projects. beginning with the restoration of the lower court itself that our office undertook in 2008, um, and that in hindsight have been gathered together under a collective title, the Yale Center for British Art Building Conservation Project. 
spanning virtually the entire building at various levels of intensity. The work executed, in particular from 2013 to 2016, addressed the following four interconnected categories. Building finishes and exhibition, and, uh, where aging worn finishes throughout the center needed refurbishment or replacement. Uh, programmatic demands, where a growing collection and visitorship demanded reconfigured and adapted administrative, educational, curatorial, and conservation spaces. Thirdly, building systems, where in the suite of the building systems, among them electrical, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, plumbing, lighting, control, fire safety, also ingeniously devised by Khan and his collaborators, had reached the end of their useful lives. New systems such as sprinklers, enhanced security, smoke management, digital technology, Wi-Fi connectivity, and, other, and others needed to be woven into the fabric of the building. While ever concerned for the well-being of people uh, in the structure, many of these initiatives were prompted by the mandate that the artwork was properly protected for future generations. And finally, the fourth category, patron amenities, always lauded for its inviting and serene setting, the center sought ways to make its visitors even more welcome and comfortable. What follows are, are vignettes uh, from the construction, conservation, reinstallation, beginning with the center's glorious fourth floor that illustrate the scope of the works undertaken during this period, which re-fortified the museum's ability to fulfill both its mission to present and to preserve. One of the most gratifying aspects of the conservation project was the reinstatement of Kahn's original premise for the long gallery on the fourth floor's southern edge, which you see here during construction. Uh, following Kahn's death, the space had been reconceived as an enfilade gallery, subdivided with large, what the center calls pogo panels, temporary uh, installation panels that you see here is one painted blue, um, that had come to be hung with a sparse density of paintings. The space is now flamboyantly elongated and much more akin to the original vision for the, for this, the room itself and features paintings uh, and sculpture organized thematically uh, in a dense arrangement of, of hanging. The, the rest of the collection is largely chronological. Uh, this long space is, is all entirely thematical um, and is meant to um, recall the salon style hang that typified the era when many of the collection's paintings were indeed created. in the category of, of programmatic adaptation uh, with an ever-increasing collection and a consequent need to house, administer, curate, and conserve works, the project undertook a number of modest spatial reconfigurations that better suited the current staffing uh, within the building. Here we see the study room as restored in 2013. This is the space that's used by two of the curatorial departments, the prints and drawings and rare books and manuscripts uh, departments to display and present works of, on paper uh, and where the offices are were redistributed to accommodate a larger number of collection storage cabinets and furniture upgrades. Uh, being a teaching institution, it's no surprise that the lecture hall was a focus of significant attention during the building conservation project. With failing seating, primitive theatrical lighting, underserved power and inadequate audiovisual technology, the lecture hall could not keep up with the center's ever-expanding program of offerings that had grown beyond the conventional lectures to include theatrical performances, film, music, and even dance. The space was comprehensively renovated 
to include the replacement of seating, the reconfiguration of seating, locations to facilitate the installation of handrails, power distribution throughout seating, Wi-Fi service throughout the room, new LED theatrical lighting, new stage floor with newfound ability to connect to the projection booth, and extensive audiovisual improvements, which include the ability for simulcasting. Additionally, um, as the demands for teaching from the collection grew, an office was converted to a collection seminar room, which allows classes to assemble in an intimate setting and to review works in various media and format. Uh, the third category, and perhaps the most complex, uh, was the extensive reworking of the building's infrastructural systems, what Khan had comprehensively dubbed services. With the requirement that the collection and most of the staff remain in the building throughout the construction, the project demanded intricate planning both in the design and construction phases. Uh, this was particularly challenging to the renovation of the building's electrical and mechanical spaces, which Khan labeled the heart and the lungs of the building, respectively, uh, which would need to remain fully functioning so as to maintain the environmental conditions vital to the safety of the artwork stored within. Extending Khan's anatomical metaphor, uh, we cracked open the sternum of the patient by utilizing an access way in the parking lot through which the building's entire bank of electrical switchgear, the heart, was removed and replaced over the course of two weeks and which, uh, which enabled once refed uh, subsequent upgrades of the mechanical system. <clears throat> With the building's entire demand for HVAC systems being served by two vast chambers containing fans, humidifiers, filters, baffles, again the lungs in Khan's parlance, the project required the installation of a Pompidou Center inspired artificial lung on the outside of the building. which allowed for the successive reaming of the two interior ones, ultimately resulting in a far more resilient, efficient, and reliable environment for art preservation. Predictably, the reach of the mechanical and electrical system extended throughout every corner of the building, and at all times we endeavored to maintain the discipline and order that characterized the original infrastructural design. For example, this new electrical distribution was achieved through channeling the topping slab, thereby avoiding surface conduit, which had scarred the building over a number of well-intentioned upgrades following an original construction. And here, too, you actually can see um, just a bit of uh, a pressed metal dome, which defines the air floor system that Khan borrowed from Roman baths uh, to organize the passage of air within the building. Um, extensive attention was paid to the exterior wall, which, as is in the case of so many museum buildings uh, in cold climates, suffered from the damaging effects of condensation. Um, and here you can actually see water um, on the surface of the, of the metal. Um, I think this is important uh, insofar as the issue of permanence and the ability of a, of a given building to confer uh, durability uh, facing the threat of, of just simple environmental conditions. Uh, it's something that I think all museums struggle with, and um, this was the, the, this represents the building most taken back. So really, we are just 1 16th of an inch away from the outside elements, and we rebuilt that wall uh, with a much more fortified package of materials that, that offer uh, expanded resiliency um, against, against the forces of nature. Uh, one of Louis Kahn's most lasting architectural legacies was his reassertion of first principles of construction, gravity, volume, solidity to a building culture that had come to be preoccupied by abstraction and lightness. 
Uh, as distinguished architectural historian Vincent Scully would note in his essay, Louis Kahn and the Ruins of Rome, Kahn wanted to deal with beginnings, with the primal, primeval reality of architecture as physical mass. As evident in his evocative travel sketches created during trips to Italy, Greece, Egypt, Kahn was captivated by architectural ruins, which, due to their sheer endurance and liberation from what Kahn dismissed as the circumstantial, were endowed with incontestable authority. It's no surprise that Kahn would summon impressions of ruins in his designs in order to imbue them with a comparable authority and to encode them with a clear designation of that which is transitory and that which is enduring. Well, for the past eight years, I, I have been Louis Kahn's student, acquiring innumerable lessons as I oversaw the disassembly and the reassembly of the Yale Center for British Art, a building that I've revered for decades. And I've come to ascribe Kahn's aspiration towards permanence or the eternal, not to physical things in particular, for in such instances, continuity, not constancy, is a far more fitting ambition. More than any other building or works which it might contain, it's the human aspiration to protect and enjoy beauty itself that can be said to be permanent. Thank you. <laughs>